I didn't know all the science. I'm not the, I'm a wine expert. I'm a representative. I can represent. There's people on the island, I'm sure, that know more about the Bible than me. But I walk the streets uh, representing. No time for Welcome to Season 6 of Camille's Demi Hour. I am your host, Camille Broderick, and this is Nantucket's NPR station 89.5 WNCK. This is a half-hour show dedicated to the Epicurean world here on Nantucket and beyond. On the show, I interview guests who will share their inspiring and thoughtful perspectives and how they are leading the charge in the ever-changing landscape of food, wine, agriculture, and hospitality. I hope this show broadens your view of this great world we live in and helps you to engage with your community and support your neighbor. Cheers and welcome to the table. Welcome, everybody, to Camille's Demi Hour. This is your host, Camille Broderick. Thank you for listening. Today, our guest is a local Nantucketer with a very unique story, someone who has a deep knowledge of fine wine and fine dining but has kept his Epicurean passion as a hobby these days. This man was a fine wine salesman over 20 years ago here on island, but has recently returned just a couple years ago as the parishioner for St. Paul's Church. With such a pivot in one's career, it begs to ask the question, how do you answer such a calling later in life? And even more so, how do you respond to it? Well, he's here on the show, and I want to hear about his career in fine wine and how he became a priest. Welcome, Father Max Wolf. Great, thank you. Thanks, Camille. Nice to be with you. It's nice to be with you too. I think the first time we spoke, we um, we connected over fine wine, and I just had an inkling that I thought you would be a great guest on the show because I think it's such a great story. So let, why don't we begin hearing about your background? So um, yeah, I grew up in Rhode Island, and when I was in college, the drinking age was um, 18 years old. Instead of drinking Budweiser or whatever, nothing wrong with that, what the other students are drinking, I used to go to wine tastings. There was a store called Town Liquors, and every Friday evening they had, for a few hours, you could go in and taste a a range of wines. And so I started buying uh, with a couple of housemates, and we started buying wines for the house. And my first case purchase was uh, Louis Jadot Beaujolais Village. You know, this is just back <laughs> in the uh, mid seventies. Not, not bad, and, uh, not bad. <laughs> yeah, so nothing wrong with that wine. I've, I've had a few, um, few others, a little more expensive ones since then. <laughs> and so um, I had one, um, one semester left in college in 1979, and I went to California on vacation, uh, and I never came back. And so when I started working as a short order cook in Hermosa Beach, California. Tennessee's Tavern, you could see from my short order station, you know, the, the kitchen, I could see the ocean right there. Moved to San Francisco, where as a waiter, I worked for um, Jeremiah Tower at Balboa Cafe. Oh, wow. I a chef out there. Mm-hmm. That cafe's been there since the early 1900s. And so there, and also a restaurant called uh, Prego, which is part of the Spectrum Foods Group in California, they would bring wine purveyors in, you know, wine merchants, and taste the wines with us. The chefs would bring food out of the kitchen so that we could know what to suggest when you came in for dinner. And then moved to New York City. Salesman, my dad's age, came in, be at the bar smoking cigars, tasting wines with the, you know, with the chefs oh, yeah. and owners. I worked at a restaurant called Barbetta down in, near Times Square. It's still there. It's been, I think it's maybe, again, early 1900s, 1907 maybe, family-owned uh, restaurant, Piemontese food. And, so, and I paid attention and... Uh, what the wine merchants taught us and started walking the streets 
of Manhattan selling wine. It, was, it took me a few months to sell anything. We had nothing that you needed. You know, we had some weird potato vodka no one's ever heard of. And, but, we, but we had 1974 Marchese di Barolo, Barbaresco and Barolo. Ooh. And the Four Seasons restaurant, I think his name was Julian the Buyer, he tasted it with me and bought $5,000 worth. And that was oh. the largest single, that was my first sale, and it was the largest <laughs> single sale the company had had oh so God. far. Yeah, I don't think you probably ever did that again. <laughs> Did that, again. that was it. Was an awesome experience, and you know, everyone else had moved on to the '78 vintage, and also a great vintage. But two in the early '80s was too young; they were too young to drink. And so we had the we had the good juice. I looked in the um, beverage guide, and I saw a company that had Burgundy, Bordeaux, you know, vintage ports, futures, and um, so I, I called up and said, if I had your wine selection, I could make a fortune for both of us. And they said, um, how soon can you be here? <laughs> let's, let's go. So I was for there it. in two hours. I, had, I used to shop at Barney's. I had my Perryless suit on. You know, I go up there. And um, <laughs> so I started walking the streets of Manhattan for that company. And, and I had customers like Larry Forgione. I'd just like walk up and down Amsterdam Avenue, walk in. I didn't have a car. I just would get on the bus with my case of samples or jump in a cab, work the town. Not an easy job. You're lugging that up and down the subway and in and out. I mean, oh, I- and- and New York is so competitive too, of course. Oh, it is business. being in the new the new to... restaurants and for women, it, it, I felt like it was always harder because I'd always want to wear nice shoes and it, cause it just never would just never never work. <laughs> That's right. I wore Red Wings. I I, wear, I still wear them. I wear but Red Wings. You still wings had to wear a suit, probably. But but anyway. Yes, so. Yeah. And so then I was asked to come to Nantucket. The company was um, introducing Burgundies. It was called Pierre Purnell was the Burgundy line, and some other wines to Massachusetts. And I knew Don DeMarco. He, he had a restaurant on the Upper East Side of New York, and he was a loyal customer. And and he had a restaurant here on India Street, on Nantucket, DeMarco's. So mm-hmm. I said, you know, Don, fly out there for the week to Nantucket. And set up appointments for us. We'll come out on Friday and meet with the with the chefs and buyers. And so I, I did that. Came out, set up all these appointments. The owners came in. Was that your first time on island? In. That was my first time on island. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I met some folks right away at Demarco's. That um, so I went back to New York, and they said, Max, um, go live there for the summer. Manhattan's quiet. You know, it's in the Hamptons in the summer. Right. Right. Or out of Plum Island, and um, <laughs> they said, um, go set up business for us here. And so. I arrived. I didn't wear a suit. I wore upscale shorts. I had my, you know, I had an earring at the time. I was kind of a punk rocker before I was a wine salesman. And uh, all the other salesmen were wearing, like, you know, polyester suits with shot, nothing wrong with those. Ties. <laughs> no one wears ties at Nantucket. I mean, even at fancy restaurants. At the Yacht Club, they don't wear ties. They wear yeah. jack jacket. Mm-hmm. So anyway, it's like, somehow people resp- responded really well to me. I had customers like Chick Walsh at 21 Federal Restaurant with bought a so much wine from me. Um, John Charles at the Chanticleer. We had to, my motto is we've got the juice because we, we had, you know, I had Gergich Hills Chardonnay. You know, I had all these, all these great wine, you know, upper end wines, Jordan. Right. We also had these great Bordeaux selection, Burgundy, Champagnes. We introduced Wolf Picot to the market. I was here that long ago. This has been the mid 80s. I mean, this is just very yeah. popular juice for this crowd. When I was at the Walwinnett, there was so many requests for Jordan and Gergage. And- Great restaurant to work the Walwinnett. Still winning one of the top wine lists in the country. 
Yeah. Year after year. Yeah, you know, my first wine now. job and uh, Craig Hanna, my boss and mentor and friend, uh, he remembers working with you there. So we need to know, when was the calling? Uh, one thing I do know about priesthood is that it's almost not a choice. It's a calling, as they say. And uh, I think I read that you, you had maybe an inkling or a calling when you were younger and it maybe returned. Yeah, exactly. I was... Um... I grew up in a different denomination in the Roman Catholic Church, actually, and we went to, you know, we went to Mass every morning, I went to parochial school for nine years, and I served at the altar a lot, and, and I was in awe. You know, it was just, it was a sense of awe. That's what, you know, whenever I talked to my own Sunday school directors, I said, we don't need to instill dogma. We need to inspire a sense of awe. And so I, um, I felt called to the priesthood as a boy, but also I, I had girlfriends since I was probably four years old, and I didn't see myself as a celibate priest I didn't feel called to that. And so my parents uh, split up when I was a teenager and I wasn't very comfortable being in the Catholic Church. And um, I ended up finding the Episcopal Church. Again, my wine business was the ministry. I walked walked the streets of Boston, Nantucket, got to know people. Um, So often I would talk about everything else but wine. You know, if if I was talking to Craig, I would talk about his family. I'd talk about my Jack Russell Terriers and, you know, life in general. And then I'd walk away with the wine order. Um, but, um, and so I started working with homeless women in Boston. Because I was a, a straight commission salesman, I would take Thursdays morning until about 1 in the afternoon off and serve women breakfast and lunch, about 100 women on Newberry Street in Boston. It's still there, women's lunch place. And so I would serve just like I was a waiter serving. You know, I used to wait on Barishnikov and Elizabeth Taylor and Jimmy Stewart in New York City. And so we waited on the homeless woman like they were Elizabeth Taylor. Women would say, this is my favorite restaurant in Boston. Oh, you know? oh that's so <laughs> and, cute. Uh, and so I did that. And, and then I went to see what you'd call probably a, a headhunter, you know, where you talk about career changes. And, and so I prayerfully did this long process. And, it, and so ordination was something I had to, I was compelled to do, called to do. I just say it, it's something you have to do. That's something you choose. How old were you at this point? And so then I was in my mid-30s, and it took me um, probably my late 30s by the time I got through the initial stages of the process. I was ordained at 40. Um, it's a three-year master's program. I was blessed to go to school right outside of Harvard Square in Cambridge. I was working for Fred Eck. So I went to Fred and the other owners and said, I'm going to seminary, so maybe you want to replace me. And he said, no, no, we'll keep going. And I doubled my sales over those three years, working very part-time. In 1996, I had $2 million in sales. <laughs> and I, was, I finished. Remember, I had never finished my BA. Instead of one semester left, I had yeah, four. Yeah, I didn't bring that up. <laughs> <laughs> and so in 1996, I got a BA in history and a master's in divinity. And I had $2 million in, in sales. Is there a correlation there? God is good. That's my time would say. You had good juice. You had good juice. We had the juice. <laughs> you had the juice. We had the juice. Ultimately, I was, uh, I was ordained. I went to the Bishop of Massachusetts and said, you know, I'm making six figures working very part-time. I could work for the church for nothing. And, and also, more importantly, people wanted to talk to me about God. The chefs on Nantucket were asking me to do their weddings, baptize their children. You can relate to the baptism part. And, and Thank so, you, Ken. Yeah, and so just before I was ordained, my bishop in Rhode Island said, he said, Max, be a salesman for, for the church. Be a salesman for Jesus. Do what you do now. Be in the community representing like you do your wine company and your, and your, and your vineyards. At the Wawena, I never wanted to sell the Wawena something they did not need, that they wouldn't order from me like for the next 20 years. Mm-hmm. 
I didn't know all the science. I'm not the, I'm a wine um, expert. I'm a representative. I can represent. Well, there's people on the island, I'm sure, that know more about the Bible than me. But I walk the streets uh, representing. Mm-hmm. You, know, my, you know, my bishop said, we have a lot of pastors that are kind of, they're hiding in their studies. Mm-hmm. He said, be out in the world. And, you know, you could probably tell I'm an extrovert. And, um, it's natural for me to be out, to be in the streets. And again, I've always seen, I've always known who the natural chefs and restaurant owners were that would that would be successful. Because you know what a difficult business it is. It's the ones that would say, Max, if you are you thirsty? Could I could I get you a beverage? Max, if you had lunch today, do you want to you know want you to sit down and have some lunch with us? For them, hospitality is a ministry. It's not a, a job, you know. Hmm. And those are the ones that are natural. Well, I couldn't agree more. I, I think people who are gifted in the restaurant industry, it's uh, it's it's their calling as well. And chefs, the same. They it, they love cooking for people. It's just they want to feed people. As soon exactly. as as soon as someone comes in the door, they just want to cook for them. I, I don't know what it is, but it's something very special. All of it. Exactly. Um, but, exactly um, right. I, I still have friends from the from the early '80s in San Francisco that were that I waited tables with. You're still friends yeah. with, yeah. No question. Fine wine and good food has made lifelong friends. We're just speaking with Father Max Wolf, the priest over at St. Paul's right here on Nantucket Island. Fantastic guy. Very great story. Having been a wine salesman here on Nantucket, a fine wine salesman, uh, when Max and I first. Met, I, I did ask you. Do you do you serve good wine at communion? <laughs> I had to ask you, and he did. He upgraded it a bit. It's no, it's no Burgundy, but but in Delaware, where I served for seventeen years, they served. But it was Angelica, you know, so turn, so so turn like, so much more complex than just a Muscat or you know an orange Muscat. So I didn't change that wine. It was just like drinking inexpensive Sauternes, but a mm-hmm. decent Sauternes. Mm-hmm. And so then I, then I came to Nantucket, where there should be Chateau de Chem <laughs> in the chalice. <laughs> yeah. And it was some muddy port from, I, I won't identify it, but it's some <laughs> domestic port. I said, no, no, no. Port is from Portugal. So I changed to Offley Port, O-F-F-L-E-Y, oh, yeah. which well, is it's a... Respectable port. Respectable. We'll take it. <laughs> so you've been uh, you've been gone from Nantucket a couple decades here. So how have things changed for you, and what's your experience being in a different part of the community? We're so blessed to be in town. So I walk the streets of town. I only drive about 50 miles a month is my average. I used to <laughs> drive 100 miles a day. It's just an old-fashioned life here. And I, because I have a Jack Russell Terrier named Meatball, we walk the streets <laughs> in the evening, and we, you know, Meatball. we get to greet people. At first, some of the pricing was a little shocking to me, and so, as because I was, you know, I'm, I'm not a high-end wine salesman anymore. It was humbling at first to come here on a priest salary. I love that we're a beach resort that has such wonderful world-class restaurants, mm-hmm. and it's always been the case on on the island. When I was here in the early '80s, even you know, Jim Perman, who's our chef now, had made beautiful food at the boarding house restaurant. You know. And Seth and Angela bought the boarding house. They've done a wonderful job over the years, continue all these years, being, you know, doing a straight wharf restaurant. Always a great wine list there, too. I love that the chef Gabriel made this fabulous restaurant. So that aspect has changed. And I think, um, you know, the prices have risen as the economy has gone up in high end markets. So it's not shocking to me anymore. I see a little more traffic. It's um, nothing like the real world. People on Nantucket love to you know, complain if there's 12 people in front of you at a stop sign. <laughs> in general, some people you know, they'll miss the, the good old days. These days are so much better than most parts of the 
world, it seems here. True. I love the island. And the beauty yeah. just never ceases. It's amazing. You know, I just I, I go almost every day throughout the winter to the Steps Beach, and we park down at the galley on the mm-hmm. street there and walk all the way down to below the cliffs and with my, my dog and just the salt air. You know, it's, it's no wonder that we've had such a, a healthy time even during the middle of the pandemic because we're surrounded by ocean and salt air and it's fresh. I think nature has been the only saving grace. Another reason why I think your story is fascinating is because the priesthood, I think over time, has has become a little bit more approachable to people. Um, Again, your story just seems so relatable to me. I just wonder how you're connecting with people in your community right now when faith is really being challenged. Fewer and fewer people are not identifying themselves as Christian and more as agnostic, and that's happening in this country at a rather quick pace. Um, And especially at this time with all that's been going on, are you seeing people calling out more for for maybe something to to believe in? Sure, very much so. But um, yeah, and I, you know, I think um, churches have done everything over the years to drive people away from Christ, uh, I hate to say it, but not all churches, but many, their judgments of people for whom they love, or I know as a child, we were, um, you know, it was uh, abusive to be rejected because you're from a broken home or whatever. You know, people say to me, especially lament that we're not, what they say, reaching young children and young families, because it won't be too sad if churches die off, but who else is going to do the work that churches do, um, just coming together, first of all, across a broad spectrum of, you know, diverse races and understandings about God, even, you know, in the Episcopal Church, we're not, we're not creedal people, we're more experiential. We experience God in our lives through the sacraments, but also especially uh, serving in the community together, praying together, singing together. And so during this time, we're reaching people across the airwaves in ways that that I never have. It's shocking. and more people are following us on Facebook Live and Zoom, and even people calling in on conference calls. They don't have computers. We have some folks that just call in and listen and talk. They're seeing that there's much more than the material world. We can never name that, really, but we can experience it. The question is not how can we like, recruit young families and children or you know, recruit people. How can we serve? How can we serve the families on Nantucket now during these extra challenging times? How can we serve the children if they can't go back to school or if they have to juggle right. times of school and the parents have to juggle their hours of work. And, and if they if people come to church, that's great. Welcome them. We have an open table, so everyone is welcome to Holy Communion. Just everybody, period, is welcome. We have a very simple mission statement. It's that our mission is that the love of God would be more widely known. People would know God's love, however they name that. Like my friends and family in recovery, they turn to a higher power. They don't even try to name it Jesus or God or you know, Holy Spirit. Or They sense a higher power that's able to assist them. And the people respond, I think, respond to that. They, to hear that God loves you rather than you're being judged. You, you know, you're excluded because you're not one of us. You can't have communion. Or, you know. Well, I think it's interesting that you pointed out that if religion were to die or churches were to go away, that what they give to the community would go away. So we kind of forget that it's not just about going to church and this this establishment is there for us. We don't realize when you're not yeah, involved. Yeah, checking that off, we check off that box. Okay, we've been to church. Right, no. but we don't know, realize how much the church is doing for the community, for those who are in need. That's something really significant to think about, but how you help others. We, again, we have so many nonprofits in Nantucket, which is wonderful, conservation, 
arts, theater, and then also groups that help prevent suicide, Fair Winds Counseling Center we're very close to, um, which has all kinds of uh, you know, crisis intervention, people with addictions. Oh, it's a kind of a network of, of social services. And so we plug into, you know, we can't offer all those things ourselves, but we can do, we serve uniquely in the community in ways that the clubs, the nonprofits, the crisis centers mm -hmm. do not. We need to supplement that. And that would be missing. And then I think it's just, again, our spiritual selves are what's everlasting. Not, again, not a piece of us. I grew up listening to the word soul, which like it sounded like a little piece of you kind of survived. You had to be careful that little piece. But rather, it's the essence of us that survives. I sense that more and more. I have so much more faith now of everlasting life than when I left the wine business in 1999. Well, one thing I, I do know in my own faith is faith is tested. And that's part of the, the experience and that's part of your growth, your spiritual growth is your faith being questioned or tested or how do you show your faith. I find it hard to imagine our lives are so significant and yet so insignificant. Uh, the, the, the contrast, there's some sort of energy there that is kind of unexplainable. And so all the unexplainable lead to something explainable. <laughs> that's, that's sort of how I look at it. And I think all the unexplainable lead to something observable or, you know, um, that we experience. I love that in the Episcopal Church, we ex I think we're focused more on experiencing God than um, any black and white answers. We live in the gray, the mystery, the mystery, mm -hmm. but, it's, mm -hmm. but it's not a total mystery. It's, mm -hmm. it's a mystery that's experienced in our everyday lives. It's when, um, you know, sometimes life gets away from us and we forget that God is walking with us, or whatever our understanding of God is, that the divine is there sparking our lives, you know, breathing through us and uh, accompanying us and ultimately walking us home. It's and, like the uh, Footprints so, poem. I've always loved, I always love the Footprints poem. Yeah, that's a sweet one. Isn't it? I love that <laughs> one. Yeah. Well, I always say now, I, I, I say, you know, I, 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 I was in, did wine for years, now I do bread and wine. Was one of my, <laughs> that's my, one of my, my wine salesman priest jokes. And now I find that I'm nourished by being on Facebook with people and Zoom and I love the images. It's a liquid image, you know, a libation, which is a liquid offering. Maybe you have friends like me that will go to a loved one's graveside and pour out some of their even good red burgundy on the grave, as, like sharing it with our loved ones, you know. It's a libation, you know, like a liquid offering. Oh, I love it. And so I love, the, I love the image of being poured out like a libation, that our lives should be poured out like a delicious red burgundy as an offering offering to God, offering to the universe. I want to be fully utilized. And again, somehow God has called me to beautiful places to live, but also places where I'm fully utilized, and that's a gift. One last thought is what I have found, and you don't need to be in church to connect with God. Like you said, God is with you. You can connect with God on your own, in your own personal ways. And like you said, even just through other people and through that libation of sharing and connection, that's how you experience God is, is, is through life. Very much so. I'm in awe of God's creation. To be on Nantucket and to have this perpetual sense of awe. It is. It's Yeah, I mean, beautiful flowers growing out of the crack, the, the cracks in the sidewalks, like anywhere. Um, well, Max, it has been a real honor to talk with you, and we welcome you back to the island Thank you so much for sharing your stories about being a fine wine salesman turned priest. It's something that I think we all could could learn and connect with in some ways about how we can change our lives. 
and and do what we feel is right. I hope you have a magnificent rest of your summer and enjoy your libations of life. Great. Thanks so much, Camille. Okay, okay. Bye-bye. Thank you all for listening. This is Camille's Demi Hour, and I am your host, Camille Broderick. Tune in every weekend on Saturdays and Sundays at 11.30 a.m. on 89.5 WNCK. If you would like to hear this full episode or past shows, you can find me on iTunes. Cheers.